Amen. Will you guys go ahead and have your seats if you can find a seat? Some of you have lawn chairs or there's picnic tables. Um, so feel free to find something that's going to be comfortable to you. Um, so again, my name is Adam Young, and I again want to welcome you to Element Church. We're excited and honored that you chose to be here this morning with us and just excited about this opportunity. Uh, now, I don't know about you, um, but I love to read. I know we have some people that are big readers in here, some maybe not so much. But if you don't like to read, maybe you like to watch movies um, and, and get your entertainment that way. You know, most of the time, a, a lot of what I read is, is kind of dry and boring and technical stuff. Um, but when I really want to relax, uh, one of my favorite things to do is to read westerns. And that's because my wife says uh, deep down inside, I'm, I'm an old man. Um, but I love to read westerns. Uh, and, uh, you know, Louis L'Amour is one of my favorite authors when I just want to read to relax and, and just uh, kind of zone out. But, you know, a few summers ago, um, I started getting into reading uh, Sir Arthur, Arthur Conan Doyle's novels and short stories on Sherlock Holmes. And so I don't know if any of you are fans of those novels or short stories, or maybe if you don't like to read, you've seen the movies um, and, and can connect uh, whether they're old ones or, or new ones. But, um, you know, what's, what's great about those stories, whether in book form or movie form, uh, is the way that the story and the mystery is presented. Because as you work through the movie, um, you start, or the book, you start to get to a place where you wonder, okay, where is all of this going? Like, where are we going to get to a conclusion? Uh, how in the world is, is everything going to get resolved? And uh, and then, of course, in every story, in every book, in every movie, uh, the the brilliance of uh, of Doctor Watson and uh, and and the detective they come through, and uh, they discover the mystery. And what I love about those books and and in, and the movies, to some degree, is that there at the very end, Sherlock Holmes. Be- Holmes begins to unpack the story, and he starts to reveal clues and turning points that he's collected during the entire journey, so that there at the end, he places every piece of the puzzle together. Now, if you were to go back and reread those books, or go back and watch those movies again, what you'd realize is those clues were there all along. They were always there, you just didn't recognize them. You just didn't realize that one particular detail became a turning point for the whole story. And, and that's what makes those novels and those short stories and those movies so great is the whole story is laid out for you. You just don't realize that you're, you're seeing it. You don't, you don't recognize the clues until at the end, uh, Sherlock puts it all together. And really, that's what we've been on a journey doing lately. If you're new with us, we've been on a journey through the Gospel of John. John was an eyewitness, uh, a follower of Jesus, and, and writes about the life and the ministry and the impact that Jesus had on both himself and the other disciples, those who followed him, and, and on everyone who came into contact with him. But John is writing from a perspective where he knows the end of the story. And so John is writing knowing how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. And so as he begins to unpack his story and to talk about Jesus, he's not just giving us facts or information. And and it's not just like a diary where John writes down, okay, this is what Jesus did today. But rather, John knows the end of the story. 
And so it's just like when you go back and you watch a Sherlock Holmes movie again or you go back and you read the novel or short story again, knowing the end, now you start to pick up on all the little pieces that mattered along the way. And so John's writing from that perspective. He knows the end of the story. And so we've been walking through trying to understand and figure out the, the way that John is communicating and how he's fitting all the pieces of the puzzle together. And as a church, we've been in a seven-week series that we called Signs. And the reason why is we've been looking at the seven miracles that Jesus performs, that John recorded in his gospel, uh, and, and been going through all seven of those miracles. And the reason we called the series Signs is because that's what John calls them. John, the author of the gospel, actually never uses the term miracle in his writing. He only uses the term sign uh, because for him, every supernatural deed of Jesus, it's a piece of the puzzle. It's pointing us. It's a sign that points us to something more important and to something even greater. And so we're going to look at one today. As a matter of fact, the one we're going to look at is the shortest one that John records. It's only a couple verses long. And so if you have your Bible, some of you brought them. Uh, If not, that's okay. Normally, uh, when we're meeting in the school, our scriptures are listed up on screen. That's just not a a reality for us in the park today. So um, maybe you have your Bibles, or maybe you want to pull out your phone or your tablet and open up the Bible app. Either way, we're going to be in John chapter 6, and I'm going to start in verse 16. And this is what John tells us. This is number uh, number five of, of seven. So this is the fifth of seven miracles uh, or supernatural acts that John is going to tell us about that Jesus performs. It says this, starting in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. So when evening came, Jesus, that's he, his disciples, those are his 12 closest followers. As a matter of fact, later in this chapter, the disciples just get referred to as the 12 um, because there were 12 of them, went down to the sea. That's the Sea of Galilee. It's a ridiculously large lake that they call the sea. It says they got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. That's just a city on the other side from where they currently were. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind and was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So this is number five of seven uh, that uh, that John records of Jesus' supernatural acts. Now most of the time, here's what we do as a church. We, we read it, and then we go back through it, and we walk through, and we point out key significant points within the text, within the story, that help to reveal how does this piece of the puzzle fit into the big picture. What is it that John is trying to communicate? John's, John knows the end of the story, so he's going to include details and clues and turning points that in the end will help the whole story come together. But, but rather than focusing on the details that are in the story, for a moment I want us to focus on what's not really there or, or what may seem out of place. Because if you were with us last week, we, we kind of filled in some of the blanks. But let me just tell you this. John chapter 6 is all about bread. And we talked a lot about that last week because right before Jesus walks on water, Jesus feeds 
Uh, we call it the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. And we talked about this last week and the details and how that system worked. That in reality, uh, John was probably referring to about 15 to 20,000 people. Jesus, with some bread, feeds 15 to 20,000 people. And the Bible says that everyone there gets to eat as much as they want. So that's the opening to chapter 6. That all of these thousands of people ate as much as they wanted for these people in the first century, for many of them, this was a rare occurrence to eat as much as you wanted. And so everyone ate as much as they wanted and were amazed at what the the miracle that Jesus had just done. So now let's skip the walking on the water that we just read. And if we skip that and go go to what happens in the rest of chapter 6, it's all about bread. And this is a really common theme for John in the way he writes. He gives us a miracle, and then he gives us a a story or an interaction or a sermon or something from Jesus that helps to explain what the miracle was really all about. So Jesus feeds a multitude with bread, and then at the end of chapter 6, Jesus preaches one of his most famous sermons in this book, where he calls himself the bread of life. He meets the crowd the next day, fifteen to 20,000 people, and Jesus knows why they're there. They had just gotten a free full meal yesterday. And so Jesus tells them, why don't you start spending your energy, spending your life pursuing things, pursuing bread that will never perish, rather than pursuing bread that will perish or that's perishable. Jesus was saying, listen, Why don't you quit spending all of your life pursuing things that won't last? You know, everyone's impressed. I fed thousands and thousands of people yesterday. But guess what? As awesome as that miracle was, you're hungry today. It didn't last. You need more. It's not enough. Maybe you should quit spending your life pursuing things that won't last, that won't satisfy, and instead spend your life pursuing what will forever satisfy, what will be totally and absolutely satisfying and fulfilling for you. And as a part of that sermon, he calls himself the bread of life. So all of chapter 6 is about bread. Jesus feeds people with physical bread. Crazy, awesome miracle. And then he preaches one of his longest sermons in the entire book where he says, I am the bread. I'm the bread that will satisfy you and last forever. Not like what you got yesterday. I'm much better. I'm what you should be after. I'm what you should be seeking. So how does this story of Jesus walking on water fit in? How does it fit into this picture that John is painting or the puzzle he's putting together? How does this piece fit? Because it kind of seems like an interruption. Now, I mean, I get it chronologically. Jesus feeds the 5,000, he walks on water, he preaches the big bread of life sermon. I get chronologically how that fits. But John left a lot of things out. He left a lot of things out in his gospel. He even tells us that. So why did he include this if it doesn't fit with the flow? What, What is it that he's trying to do? If you know the story of Jesus walking on the water from some of the other gospel writers, you know that John left out a lot of details. John doesn't say anything about Peter. 
If you're familiar with the Bible or maybe you have some experience in church, you may be familiar with the, the other details of this story that John never says anything about. The other gospel writers do. About how when, when the disciples see Jesus and Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's just me. And, and Peter says, okay, Jesus, if it's really you, tell me to come out on the water. And Peter takes a few steps and realizes what's happening. He gets scared and sinks and Jesus has to catch him and pull him up. John doesn't say anything about that. John doesn't say anything about the wind stopping when Jesus gets in the boat. Doesn't talk about Jesus' ability to command and control the weather. So why does he leave all these details out? Where does this fit in? And I think there's one big clue for us. And this will drive home, I think, the point for this story and our point for today. After this, no one ever talks about Jesus walking on water again. Not in the Gospel of John. So Jesus walks on the water, and there's only 12 people who see it. The 12 disciples. And then Jesus, neither Jesus nor the disciples ever mention it again. The crowd the next day who hears Jesus' famous sermon, they don't know anything about it. They have no idea what took place the night before. No one talks about it. So if this little miracle was only given to the 12, and no one else saw it, no one else even knew about it, until John and some of the other gospel writers decided to record it, I think that's a big clue for us. And we're going to take a few steps back, and I'm going to go back to verse 10. And this was from last week, but we'll just hit a, a few of those verses. And it says this, Jesus said, have the people sit down. This is when he's about to feed them, the day before. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. When they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So, we talked about there were about fifteen to 20,000 people that day. That's as many people fit as fit into the Pepsi Center. I want you to stop and think about some of these things. John doesn't mention them, but we can, we can get our minds there. How long does that take? How long do you think it takes to feed 20,000 people? By passing baskets one by one by one. The 12 disciples, they were kind of the waiters of the day. They helped to ensure that everyone got food, that the baskets were fully packed, passed out, that, that none of the sections of people sitting in the grass got skipped out. Uh, Jesus even gives his disciples, have them sit in groups. And How long do you think it took those 12 men to feed 20,000 people? You think they were tired? You think they were hungry? And so many times we read these stories and it's almost like they happen in a flash, but they don't. All day, all day in the sun, these men never stopped working. At the end of a long day, they're tired and they're hungry 
Because they're the only ones out of 20,000 people who haven't eaten yet. And they gather back around Jesus and Jesus says, hey boys, I don't want to waste anything. Go collect what's left. And those 12 men go out and collect what? 12 baskets. Coincidence? Think Jesus got lucky? Or is Jesus trying to teach his disciples something in that moment? Now, fast forward six, seven, eight hours. Disciples get in the boat and Jesus isn't with them. They row out into the lake by themselves. What do you think those disciples are talking about? What do you think the number one thing on their mind in that moment is? You think they're talking about what Jesus had just done for the multitude? I'm sure they are. But do you think they're also talking about how it ended? That after they had given everything they had and worked and served all day, Jesus made sure they had enough too? Now, we didn't talk a lot about it last week, but as soon as Jesus feeds the multitude, do you remember what they tried to do? They tried to take them by force and make them king. This is a group of people who've been oppressed for the last, oh, roughly 800 years by the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and now in the first century, the Romans. They're desperate to be their own kingdom, to have freedom, to have their own ruler. And they see Jesus as useful. A man who can do this, who can feed all of us, that's the kind of man we need as king. That's the kind of country, that's the kind of leadership we want. And they try to make him king by force. And Jesus knows what their intentions are. And so he slides away and sneaks off. But do you think in the boat the disciples are going, hey, maybe we should make him king. Maybe, maybe this would be good. I mean, after all, even after feeding 20,000, he was still in enough control that there was a perfect amount left for us. Do you, do you wonder if maybe the disciples had started to see Jesus as useful as well? And then John gives us this story, and he intentionally leaves out a lot of details. Details that we know from other writers, but John doesn't mention. It's really simple. It's six verses. The disciples go out into the boat. It gets dark. The wind comes up. They're scared. They see Jesus. He tells them not to be afraid, and this is how the story ends. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to where they were going. doesn't say anything about Jesus fixing the wind or fixing the waves or taking control over them. All that John tells us is Jesus got in the boat, and then they arrived to their destination. This was a miracle for just those 12. After all they had seen and been through the day before. At the end of chapter 6, you know, I told you Jesus preaches this big sermon about I'm the bread of life. And when the people, the crowd, the 20,000 realized that Jesus wasn't going to feed them again, he was just going to preach to them, they said, no thanks. 
And in verse 66, it says, And many turned and followed him no more. That's why we're feeding you food today, so you don't leave while I'm in the middle of preaching. Um, So when they realized they weren't going to get a full belly, Jesus was no longer useful. Jesus, in that moment, in verse 67, turns to his disciples and he says, Are you going to leave too? And Peter steps up and says, How can we? We know too much. Because in that moment on the water, the disciples had started to see Jesus not just as useful, but as precious. That it wasn't just about what Jesus can do for you, but in coming to a place and knowing that Jesus is enough in and of himself. Whether he fills your belly or not, he's enough. Just having him in the boat is all you really need. And when everyone else decided Jesus wasn't useful anymore, they left. But the disciples had come to a new place. They had seen something. They had experienced something. But they realized it's not just about what Jesus can do for you. It's about having him and knowing and believing and embracing that he's enough. And that's a thought I want to end on today. The thought I want to leave you with. There's no doubt Jesus does amazing miracles. That Jesus works in your life and does things that you never thought were possible. He loves to take what's so small and insignificant and multiply it to satisfy you. But in the end, it's not about what Jesus does for you. It's about understanding that He's enough. That He's all you need. That having Him in the boat, that having Him in your life, is all you need. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for our time together today. I thank you for this beautiful weather and the opportunity just to sit and think and reflect and to allow your truth and your word to, to speak to us. God, as we close out this morning, Lord, I pray you would do a couple things. I pray that new friendships would be born in this place, that uh, relationships would grow deeper, that you would make our church more of a family and community. And the opportunity just to spend good time with one another. And, but Jesus, I also ask that you would work in our hearts so that like the disciples, we could come to that place where we don't just see you as useful, as a magic genie in the bottle to answer our prayers whenever we need to get out of trouble, but that you and you alone are precious, that all we need is you. God, would you continue to move and to speak in this place and in our hearts? We thank you for this opportunity to be together. We love you and pray.